brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Softrip.com, on time, on target. A lot of people really like the episode with Curtis Albers back on episode 311, so we're having him back on. Um, if you've never heard it, that was a really in-depth discussion. It might be the longest Softrip rating we've ever done. Um, so I feel like he got very in-depth with his history, but he had a few other things he wanted to add, so we'll hear about that. Um, Jack, I think the first thing to talk about would be Syria. I mean, yeah. this is obviously huge news and uh you know there's there's a wide range of opinion on how the president acted not only how he acted but the the way he acted there's republicans for example in congress saying you know no congressional authority this is the same type of stuff that obama was criticized for and every other president yeah president clinton uh you know ordered uh airstrikes against suspected al-qaeda targets in um uh was it sudan and also Afghanistan, uh, George W. Bush certainly yep. ordered attacks in places without congressional approval. Barack Obama <laughs> absolutely did. <laughs> so, I mean, Trump is kind of continuing that trend. Um, it's another one of those things like, yeah, everyone's like, oh, I hate Trump, blah, blah, blah. Okay, cool, man. But, I mean, you can hate him if you want, but, I mean, it's the same thing that every other president did, which doesn't excuse it um, if you think it's constitutionally wrong. But I, I just say let's be consistent in how we condemn our presidents and not just because he's this party or that party. But wasn't it only, I think, a week or two ago that he was saying we need to draw back in Syria? Yeah. Well, I mean, we talked about that on the last podcast, right? Yeah. I was saying that Trump doesn't even take himself seriously. Like the things he says, he doesn't take seriously. Um, so, yeah, he was talking about we need to withdraw everybody out of Syria, all of our American personnel. And then General Votel is like, uh, no, like we don't have any plans to do that. We need to stick around. And then Trump's like, oh, well, we're reconsidering. We're thinking about it. And But, I mean, that's how he thinks. He thinks in terms of, like, that reality TV, social media, like, is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? Wait until after the commercial break to find out. You know, it's that kind of you know, mentality. That's his approach to governance. And it creates fucking chaos for all concerned um, Certainly an interesting first week for John Bolton. Jeez, yeah. Uh, I, also, I was um, pointing this out, um, much to the dismay of some people, that you know Trump really criticized Obama for quote unquote telegraphing our moves. Yes. Right. So, like in Mosul, like it was announced, like there's going to be a battle for Mosul. We're going to retake the city. And he's like, why are they s- announcing? Why are they saying that ahead of time? And I tried to point out to people at the time. I was like, look it's not really possible to hide large troop formations in Iraq. 
It's in the desert. Everybody's got a cell phone. You start moving all the pieces around the chessboard. I mean, there's no way to keep that secret in this, especially in this day and age. You know, maybe like, uh, you know, 500 years ago, you could wake up the troops and have them march through the night and launch a surprise attack. Um, these days, it's a hell of a lot harder to pull that off. Right. It, you can do like, you know, SEAL Team 6 on stealth helicopters, insert a small team in the middle of the night and get the drop on them that way. Yeah, yeah you can do that. But like having an army attack a city like you're not going to be able to do that in a, in a clandestine manner. Um, so, I mean, I understood why they were making those announcements. Um, they were also trying to prepare the Iraqi government as best they could, and it was a long, drawn-out process. I would criticize the American government more and the Obama administration more because they announced we were going to retake Mosul, and then like a week later, they're like, ah, ah, ah the, the Iraqi army needs like another six months of preparation. <laughs> it's like, what, what a clown show this is. But, um, you know, nonetheless, I, Trump was on Twitter like, a day and a half before he launched the airstrikes, like, oh, Syria, better watch out. Here come our smart strikes. They're coming in Russia. You better behave. And then, you know, you know, what was it, 24 hours or maybe Just a little bit more, little yeah. bit more, maybe a day and a half. He launches the airstrike. It's like this is exactly what you criticized Obama for. So, again, it's like just a question of being consistent. And I know I'm not trying to be like a 13-year-old. I mean, we live in an inconsistent world. People are inconsistent. Um, So that's, again, not necessarily an excuse, but I understand we live in an inconsistent world. But it's just hard not to notice these things when people are so loud and obnoxious about their claims, and then they do the exact same thing that they criticize people for. And it was funny to see the Trump supporters come out and defend him, like, oh, oh, but he didn't give any details at all about the strike. It's like, yeah, but he told them the strike was coming, which tells the Syrian government they need to move all their airplanes and all their chemical weapons before the strike comes. That's kind of the most important part. Um, As far as the strikes themselves, um, I, I talked to a source of mine who has very good access in Syria. Um, I can't really get any, any deeper into it than that right now, but um, they were telling me that the airstrikes were mostly symbolic, that they didn't do a whole lot of damage. And it seems like there's a lot of other analysts out there um, with their own sources and also looking at open source information who more or less concur with that, that it was more symbolic than anything else. Just like the first airstrike that Trump ordered against Syria for the use of chemical weapons. It's not war in the conventional sense that like we're going to war with this country. It's messaging on the international stage. Like you're slapping the guy's pee pee. Like, no, (laughs) don't do that. Don't use the chemical weapons. They're bad. Just slap him on his penis. Take a ball, like a big ballpoint pen and just whack. whack. That's basically what what Trump was doing. You have an interesting perspective on this because for the audience that doesn't know, I, I always try to keep in mind there's new people listening all the time. Two or is it three years ago, you were in Syria. You got to sit down with President Assad. Oh, that was like two years ago now? Yeah. 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 Um, so, I've yeah, I've been to Syria twice during the war. Um, the first time I got smuggled into northern Syria with the PKK, um, the Kurdish fighters, guerrilla fighters, um, and spent a lot of time with the YPG and YPJ militias. Um, that was 2014, late 2014. Um, and then I went and, uh, and then I was in Iraq 
2015 reporting um, with the Peshmerga. And then 26, yeah, I guess it was 2016, I was in Damascus, this time with the, under the auspices of the Syrian government. Um, and uh, those were all interesting trips. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the, the use of chemical weapons, yeah, it's really interesting. And I think like a lot more research needs to be done on this. Um, for sure, ISIS and the rebels have used chlorine gas. I do believe that the regime has also used chemical weapons uh, in, in multiple instances. But the question is why it's, you know, Bashar al-Assad is not a dumb person by any means. Why would he use chemical weapons when he knows this is going to incite the anger of the entire international community? Um, It doesn't seem to make sense. Like, okay, maybe you, you know, kill some bad guys, you kill some rebels, um, but you're also going to kill a bunch of civilians and it, it's just, you know, return on investment or risk versus gain uh, analysis. Like, it just doesn't add up. And the Assad government and the Alawite regime are smart enough to know that. They're not dumb. So it brings about the question, why are there players on the ground who are using these chemical weapons? And the only thing I can really come up with is I think that for some colonel, or some major or captain or whoever has, you know, they they have some access to some limited chemical weapons. And for them, it makes tactical sense to use that weapon, even though for Syria as a whole, it doesn't make any strategic sense whatsoever. So I I have to wonder if there aren't mid-level Syrian military officers who are freelancing some of these decisions and doing it on their own. Um, The last big, big one that happened, um, was it in Gouda? the big chemical weapon strike and, and Trump ordered the airstrikes in retaliation for that as well. Um, it was weird because Nikki Haley was at the UN uh, saying like, look, we're reversing the Obama era policy. Um, we're going to reach some sort of accommodation with the Syrian government and with Russia. And this was Michael Flynn in the background, pulling some of the puppet strings on that as well. And it was like a day or two after Nikki Haley said that, that the chemical weapons were used. It was almost like somebody was deliberately sabotaging this uh, reconciliation policy that the Trump administration was trying to advocate for. And I I know I'm getting my tinfoil hat on Mm -hmm. a little bit there. I'm just and I don't know the full story by any means. I'm just saying I think we need to take a closer critical look at that and that whole sequence of events and the more recent sequence of events that happened with this chemical strike. I do believe 100% chemical weapons are being used on the ground. I think the rebels have used them. I think the regime has used them. I think ISIS has used them. I'm not a, you know, a denier or something like that. I think we just need to take a a really hard look at what's going on over there because whatever the case is, we have not gotten the whole story yet. There's more to, and there's a lot of propaganda that, yeah. And and the Russians are spouting off propaganda left and right. They're saying that, um, it's all a, you know, the UK, um, you know, basically doing some sort of like false flag attack or something like that. Like it's all staged, that the White Helmets staged it. And, I mean, the White Helmets is a very dubious group. I mean, I know I'll catch flack for saying this, but, I mean, they're, you know, wolves in sheep's clothing, and they are sponsored, have been sponsored, at least in the past, by this U.K. firm. That whole um, documentary that was made about the White Helmets is very odd. Um, And they operate inside Islamist-controlled areas, 
So it, it just raises the question. It raises a lot of questions, frankly. But, I mean, I don't believe that all of these chemical weapon attacks are staged. I mean, that's nonsense. But what about people who are out there saying there's no proof that the Assad regime is using chemical weapons? Is that pure conspiracy theory at this point, or is it... I mean, it depends on what proof is. I I don't think that we have 100% proof. Um, I'm not sure if we're ever going to get 100%. Um, You know, it's much like when, um, when the Russians shot down that Malaysian airliner over Ukraine. They liquidated all the people who knew stuff about that. Because hmm. you remember how all that went down, and then there was, like, international like tribunal hearings and stuff like that. My information about it was that the Russians, they liquidated all the commanders on the ground. Like, they disappeared into shallow graves somewhere so hmm. that they can never offer testimony. Wow. And that's not conspiracy theory. That's, I mean, I don't have facts. I could improve. Uh, sure. I mean, I have what sources in the close to the situation have told me, but I don't have, I could not prove it in a court of law. Um, and I suspect that when somebody in Syria uses a chemical weapon and pisses off the world like this, that there's a similar type of cover up taking place. Um, and it's also telling that the government, the regime will not let the um, Organization for the Protection Against Chemical Weapons, um, what is it, OPIW, won't let them inside the area where this chemical weapon attack took place. They let in some weird news agency. They, um, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, but they won't. What, One American News, I think. It is. Yeah, yeah. They, so they're running. They're I running. That's OAN. I, I probably have the acronym. They're running their disinformation campaign, but they won't let the actual chemical weapons experts in to test to see if chemical weapons had been used. And if not, then okay, then we move on, you know. Um, but <laughs> if if they weren't used, if chemical weapons weren't used, what possible motivation would the regime have for not letting them in? Yeah. doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't make sense at all. I, I'm just wondering on a personal note, does it ever blow your mind that you got to sit down with this guy? Because um, I think of that scenario, like even during the... Um, last presidential debate they started to ask uh candidates like i remember they asked jeb bush if you could sit down with like baby hitler would you kill baby him? hitler yeah what kind of question is that baby hitler? do you remember that though no, they, they no, asked him they were like would you kill baby hitler would you kill and, baby? I, and i remember jeb bush was like yeah what, like but, a little baby with a little hitler mustache yeah. under his nose <laughs> but you know you probably i would think contemplate you got to sit down with a guy that is you know one of the most hated someone say dictators in the world right now Hey, he's definitely, I mean, not doing so hot in the international arena. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm just thinking, reflecting on it now, the fact that you got to sit down and have a discussion with him. I thought, I mean, it was, it was interesting. It was, it was fascinating uh, in a few different ways. But, I mean, you have to keep it all in perspective. Um, you know, there are many people out there doing many weird things. I, I think that with Assad... And what came out of that trip for me is that the government is way more fragile than people think. Um, And they are not nearly people. It's a it's a personalized regime in so many ways. If you drive around Damascus, you're going to see pictures of Assad all over the place. Um, You'll see even statues. When I was in northern Syria, the area that was controlled by the Kurds, You'd see um, the Kurds have their own, um, you know, pictures and and propaganda everywhere, YPJ flags, um, pictures of Abdullah Ojalan all over the place. 
Um, but you'll also see, uh, like in the town square statue of Hafiz al-Assad, who was Bashar's father. Hmm. Um, so it's a very personalized regime in that sense that there's a, a conflation of Assad is Syria. There, there's no distinction between the two. Like in the United States, Donald Trump is not America. Barack Obama is not America. We see these are elected leaders. They're going to be our president for a yeah. little bit. Then they're going to go away. Um, but when push comes to shove, it was interesting to see some of, uh, you know, my experience trying to travel, even just travel around Damascus. And I had permission to go into a neighborhood um, called Katsia from both the Ministry of Defense, the media office. Um, and I was there at the invitation of the Syrian government. So like, I had all the permissions you could possibly get. And I still couldn't get into this neighborhood because it, it's like some random checkpoint uh, guard has more power than the government itself. And I'd come mm. to find out that the reason why is because the Syrian government cuts all these deals with rebel groups to try to like, oh, come on back into the fold. So it looks like the Syrian government has control over these areas, but really they don't. Um, it, it's, a, it's a negotiated sort of settlement, and it, it just leaves kind of the large swaths of the country in limbo. I imagine that hasn't changed that much as they're still at war and they haven't really had a chance to um, have some sort of reconciliation process and consolidate the nation. That's a project that's going to take several decades. Um, but that's, that was just one of the observations for me that while you have this very personalized regime, who's really in control? inside syria and that's the question interesting man yeah, yeah. i i just think it's got to be crazy that that you met the man spoke with him uh, and we're civil and this is a guy that yeah. our government would like to see dead so well no well we wanted to see him under obama we wanted to topple the assad regime but i don't think our government wants to kill assad i think we're sp- even now no because if we wanted him dead, we, we, I mean, we'd go to war or we'd, yeah, yeah. we'd bomb all of his presidential palaces. We'd try to kill him. But, the, you know, that also leads to a lot more. It's, it, it's not so easy to do. Yeah. Well, you have to rebuild the nation. Yeah, we don't, in Iraq, we, don't so. go, we don't do good with regime change to begin with. No. And it's as I said, um, I, I said a couple of years ago, uh, which remains true, is the alternative to Assad right now is just chaos. I mean, OK, yeah, great. You removed Assad. Now what? Do you think we should be involved there at all? In Syria? Yeah. Um, I, I think that our engagement is more or less correct. Um, it's a complicated subject, of course, and, and the question becomes what after. Um, it's what are our priorities? And um, First and foremost, the, the projected reason for being there, what we articulate and express to the public, is that we're there because of ISIS. Well, I mean, how much of ISIS has really left? Um, we, of course, we also don't want ISIS to return. Okay, so now how long are we going to return? Or are we going to remain in Syria mm-hmm. because ISIS could return? I mean, you see how weak and corrupt and inept the uh, the Iraqi government is, and the Syrian government their their capacity is not much better. They got their asses whipped by ISIS also. So how long do, are we going to hang out? Right. Um, now that then there's a question and this is in the Kurdish community it's literally known as the Kurdish question and the Kurds are there what what's the answer to the Kurdish question are they going to have their own state 
Um, how's that going to shake out? Uh, what the Kurds want, my understanding of it, is that the Kurds want their own semi-autonomous um, state inside Syria, in this area they call Rojava. Um, and when I say semi-autonomous state, they would say, talk about like a canton, um, which is uh, like in Switzerland. But sort of we have the tradition here in the, in the United States where our states have some individual rights. There are not individual rights, but states' rights, mm-hmm. that, that concept. So they want something like that, like there's some um, respect and, um, and equal rights for the Kurdish people who are second-class citizens mm-hmm. in Syria for the longest time. Um, they want some like local decision-making autonomy that they can kind of figure things out for their own. Um, but they'd still be part of the Syrian federal government. Um, and that's what they're pushing for now. How does the United States enter into that at all? Are we going to um, safeguard or guarantee some of these, uh, this answer to the Kurdish question? We don't know. Yeah. And it's what I've been saying since the beginning of this campaign. ISIS is just a little blip on the radar. The question is what comes after ISIS? And I don't think any, our government still to this day has not thought that through. What is this region going to look like after ISIS? What the hell are we going to do there? Sure. And we have not put the thought into that that it needs. Yeah. No, and, and we need to see a lot further ahead when yeah. we take these actions. Uh, so you had, you had two articles that you wanted to discuss before we bring on Curtis. Uh, first of which, American who joined the Viet Cong in Vietnam. Yeah. It's called uh, When a Marine Recon Patrol Got into a Firefight with an American Viet Cong. I think that's the name of the article. Um, but you can check it out on SoftRep. And the, the gist of the story is there's a Marine recon patrol out in an um, uh, area called Fubai in the jungle. And um, they were doing their standard area reconnaissance, looking for enemy troop buildups, um, uh, enemy bunker systems, just a reconnaissance, see if the enemy's out there. And uh, if they find them, they can call in some airstrikes. Uh, what happened was they were patrolling for like two days. The boys, the Marines, are getting tired. They're running out of water. Um, their uh, team leader was a guy named House, Corporal House. He pauses the patrol. It's like 10 guys. So they get into a perimeter. They pull, pulling security. Um, they're r- right next to a stream. There's a waterfall coming down into a stream. Um, the creates like a little pool at the base of this cliff. Um, there's some boulders around, things like that. And they go and they refill their canteens. Um, refill up on water and they're in the security halt for about 30 minutes taking a rest like they need it at this point um one of the other guys a a lance corporal was putting on his uh his his pistol belt again putting his kit back on and uh as he looks up he sees something and his uh team leader house sees this like strange look on his face and is like what in the world are you looking at and turns and looks and in the pool of water where they had filled up their canteens is a Viet Cong, VC, right? But this Viet Cong, the guy is dressed in like green cutoff shorts, uh, OD green top. He has like this red sash across uh, his chest. He has AK-47 slung over his shoulder. He has his haircut um, sort of in the same style the VC have where it's like shaved on the side, kind of long on top. Um. But this VC is clearly a white guy. It's not, the guy is not Vietnamese or even Asian. He's Caucasian. And at that point, another VC, an actual North Vietnamese dude, um, Viet Cong, comes walking around from behind the boulder. 
um, that corp that Lance Corporal who saw the white guy in the pool, they were both like just looking at each other. And the then the American Marine he lunges for his rifle, picks it up. They get into a firefight. The guy fires at the um, white Viet Cong. Dude goes down under a hail of gunfire, or so it seems, falls back into the stream. The Marines get into a big firefight with what they estimate is about 25 Viet Cong, um, firing grenades, throwing grenades, M16s jamming, all the whole nine yards. They try to break contact, get the hell out of there. Um, on the way out, they get ambushed by another force. Um, one of their men, uh, Private uh, First Class Brown, is uh, killed. Um, the team leader, uh, Corporal House, then kills the guy who killed Brown. Um, they evac out of there. They get hoisted out by a helicopter. And uh, as they're on the helicopter, they start talking a little bit about what they saw because a, a, like maybe like a handful of these guys actually saw the white Viet Cong dude with their own eyes, and they were just in like stunned disbelief. And I got a hold of the after-action reports that House had typed up after this patrol where they talk about the Caucasian Viet Cong. And now the question becomes, who the hell was this guy? Yeah. The Marines reported him as dead. They thought they had killed him in that firefight. Uh, that turned out, and I believe that that, um, that is not the case, that actually he survived that. What was widely suspected, um, at least by people who were familiar with this incident, with this firefight, was that that Viet Cong was somebody named Bob Garwood, who was also a Marine. Uh, Garwood was reported captured um, a couple years prior. Um, how exactly Garwood was captured is um, something that's disputed. No one really knows for sure. Um, he was driving a Jeep around Da Nang. Um, you know, maybe he was looking for hookers or something <laughs> and he disappeared. He, this guy already had kind of an unsavory past. Um, and I wrote about in the article a little bit about that and who he was and where he came out of. Um, kind of an odd guy, um, smart, but, um, well, you'll, you'll get the gist from the story. But anyway, he gets captured by the Viet Cong. Um, and at some point he goes over to the other side. He actually defects and is like, okay, I'm one of you now. Um, and what we have is accounts from other American POWs who were in POW camps with Garwood and Garwood became like the trustee of the Viet Cong. He was like the informer. He would go and inform on the other prisoners be like, Oh yeah, yeah. Those Americans are doing this. There are Americans. He was with the, um, the first year. One of them was a special forces captain, um, who tried to escape. And both times these guys tried to escape, Garwood would go and inform on them. Mm-hmm. And tell the VC like, oh, the Americans ran. You got to go get them. So this guy was a sellout. He was a he was a patsy for the communists. Um, and the other POWs, the the way they describe him is that he wasn't an ideologue. He he wasn't a, actually a communist. He was just a guy who he saw how harsh treatment was in the POW camps, and literally like people were starving to death. Uh, it was it was brutal. And for for uh, Garwood, he looks at this and it's like, well, okay, my best chance of survival is to just align yeah. myself with the VC, and that's what he did. Um, you know, and there are so many other American POWs who they kept their faith with their fellow POWs, their fellow Americans. Um, they they suffered through torture, all sorts of horrendous things, but they still came back home with their honor intact. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, Bob Garwood was not one of these people. Now, initially, I thought that um, perhaps the Marine Corps and others were using Bob Garwood as a scapegoat. 
Um, it's kind of like Bob uh, Bo Bergdahl, right? Yeah, yeah, that's so, what I was thinking. So er, er, like that. everything that goes wrong in Afghanistan, ah, it's that fucking Bergdahl. You know, yeah, it's yeah. his fault. I thought I, I felt that maybe that's what was going on in this case also. That maybe like yeah, Garwood was a sellout, but was he really going out on patrols with a Viet Cong like that? Um, and as I did more and more research, I have come to believe that no, actually they're quite correct that that guy, that white Viet Cong, was Garwood. It all begins to line up. Uh, in the POW camp, Garwood left with the Viet Cong uh, for about three weeks. He would. He told people later that he went out with a, a loudspeaker, and they would go near American bases, and he would talk to an American trying to get other GIs to defect. In English. In English, right. You said in American. Oh, well, <laughs> I should say American accent yeah, in English yeah, yeah. because there would be there could be Vietnamese who speak English. But when you hear Garwood talk, you would know, you know, he's one of ours. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so he was he he had done that before. And then in July of that year, uh, in 68, he disappeared from the camp for three weeks. This was the period of time when the recon Marines encountered the white Viet Cong. Uh, another interesting detail was the um, guys, the Marines who saw Gar- who saw the white Viet Cong. They describe him as wearing green cutoff shorts. The POWs in the POW camp also describe Garwood as wearing hmm. OD green cutoff shorts. So the shorts in of themselves don't mean anything really, but it's just one of those like that's a very interesting specific detail to remember. Yeah, right? you know we have uh, John Mayer coming back on. I think next week. You think he has any more insight into this? I, I, I brought it up with him actually. Um, he he had never heard of it. Oh wow! And actually, when I and brought- he's he's pretty much you know not only. Uh, veteran but kind of a historian of of the vietnam War. I, I mentioned it also i reached out to some uh force recon marines who served in vietnam um apparently the force recon uh, association was not even aware of this incident so you're breaking news from no no no, no, no. I, i'm not i'm not really breaking news um the story has been out there for a little while um i think maybe if anything i just put a few things together that weren't there before that's cool um so Garwood, I mean, I, I'm I'm personally 100% convinced that that was Garwood that they encountered in the jungle that day who had taken up arms with the enemy. Um, now, when he came back to the POW camp after those three weeks, he wasn't injured. So, so what exactly happened in that firefight? Obviously, there was some confusion. Did uh, They saw him fall down in the stream. Did he trip? Did he stumble backwards in, in surprise when he saw the guy go for his rifle after the first shots were fired? Um, you know, the Marines thought he was dead, probably with some justification. But, um, you know, it's things get pretty chaotic in a firefight. Yeah. And it's hard to ascertain exactly what happened. Um, so, but whatever the case, Garwood clearly survived that. And also when he came back to the POW camp after those uh, three weeks, he uh, he told the other POWs that he, they had run into an American patrol and they had taken fire. And he said the VC saved his life. Hmm. So, again, it all comes together. It all makes sense. Um, and then there's a whole, like, after story epilogue to this whole thing. Um, after 1973, Henry Kissinger negotiated with the Vietnamese government to release all of our POWs. Um, Garwood did not come home. He voluntarily stayed in North Vietnam. And there's this from like 69 to 79 or so, there's this whole like black hole 
in Garwood's timeline, nobody really knows where he was. He talked about going to Hanoi. There were rumors that he even went to Russia. No one really knows what the hell was going on during that decade. Um, But he did eventually up Periscope. He uh, slipped a note to an employee of the World Bank um, in Hanoi at a hotel, um, lying again. This guy was a compulsive liar, um, saying that he was a POW and that he knows where other American POWs are still held in Vietnam. And both of those things were lies. Um, But they got the attention of the American government. Um, We did repatriate him. Um, They, you know, flew him out picked him up in, uh, in Bangkok, then flew him to Okinawa, then back to the United States, and he was brought up on charges. Um, some of the charges were thrown out, um, but he did get uh, charged on communicating with the enemy, and um, there were times where he even hit other American POWs at the behest of the Viet Cong. He was convicted of that. So he never served any jail time. He was just stripped of his rank, his veterans benefits, all his back pay. That was all gone. They're like, get the hell out of here. Uh, Garwood is one of these guys like he was such a disgrace to the Marine Corps I think they tried to just sweep it all under the rug as fastly as they possibly could I don't think they really wanted to deal with it (laughs) if they didn't have to so you can read that at softrep.com very interesting it's a weird story man yeah it's super weird and and you can draw comparisons to John Walker Lind the American Taliban I remember him um, or Bo Bergdahl in Afghanistan and I I don't want to make a direct comparison um, the only thing I would say really stands out between Garwood and Bergdahl is these are people who should not have been in the military in the first place. Yeah. They shouldn't have been there. Um, that's what I would say about them. Um, but otherwise, otherwise the cases differ significantly. Um, I, do you think that's sometimes a consequence of having a draft? Uh, yeah. It, that, well, that's a good point you make too, right? We had a draft, although um, Garwood was not drafted. He, he enlisted. This is interesting, too. He was in a juvie home. His father had him put in a juvie home. And the local Marine Corps recruiter would use the juvie home to fill his quota. So he'd go there and be like, hey, boys, come join the Marine Corps. And Garwood was one of those guys. Mm. Um, Which is still, in a way, done today, right, where troubled youth, it's kind of a way for them to see discipline, join the military. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah, for kids who are in trouble, um, you know, whatever your background is, I mean, you could be inner city youth, you know, in trouble with the law or even in more rural areas, you know, life's not going anywhere for you. You know, the military offers a way out. Right? And, and from what I know, you know, when we have like troop surges, you know, we, we need to fill those quotas. And that's what happened with Bergdahl. Um, he came in during the surge. He was one of those guys who should not have been let in. Garwood, you know, they were ramping up the Vietnam War. He had already, and this is another aspect of the story that I, I didn't even get that deep into, but he got into trouble in Okinawa. See, he was stationed in Okinawa before he went to Vietnam. And, and allegedly, he pursued a relationship with a 13-year-old girl oh, in Okinawa, wow. a daughter of an army family. So he, and he was going AWOL. He was getting in all kinds of trouble in Vietnam, or I'm sorry, in Okinawa, and then he gets sent to Vietnam. So the question also becomes, what happened there? Why wasn't he brought up on charges in Okinawa? Uh, did they send him? Maybe they sent him to Vietnam to try to get rid of him. You know, moving the problem around. Like, ah, just get him out of here. Get him off the base. Send him in a NAM. Yeah, interesting, man. Yeah, there's a lot of unanswered questions. Like I said, there's a whole 10 years of this guy's life that are just missing. And he did come back to the United States. He's still here somewhere. Oh, I re- wow. I read this whole... Um, 
Do you think under a different alias? And I, I really don't know. Um, there's I would a, think so. There's a huge long blog post written by this guy who claims that Garwood moved in next door to him and stole his wife. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's it's so weird. But I mean, it's uh, the tiger doesn't change its stripes, right? Yeah, he's still him. I would I would think that he's got to be under if he's back under some type of witness protection or something. No, he, he wouldn't be given witness protection. Or, um, or living under a different name. He could, yeah, he's probably hiding out somewhere. Um, and then there's another article. for Once again, for those who don't know, since, like I said, I always try to keep in mind there's new listeners every episode. Uh, a year ago, you were in the Philippines. Yeah. And so you put out there that the Philippines have created their own SOCOM. Yeah. So when I was in the Philippines interviewing guys, um, interviewing members of the Philippines Special Operations Community, um, including all the army units, the scout rangers, special forces, the light reaction regiment. Um, I got to interview the SOCOM commander, General Pomonog, uh, and I, I got to go hang out with the NAVSOG guys, the Philippine SEALs. Um, it, it, they all advocated and talked about wanting to establish uh, SOCOM. Like, we have Special Operations Command that unifies the special operations units of all the branches of service yeah. in one. Um, at the time I was there, they had an organization called SOCOM uh, at Fort Magsaysay. But the problem was that it, their version of SOCOM was just for the Army units. So it was the Scout Rangers, Special Forces, and the LRR. It didn't include the other services. Um, so creating a, a unified SOCOM that includes all of the services was really the dream of General Pomonog. He was somebody who um, believes and continues to believe in um, the spirit of jointness and how important it is to run joint operations. He saw how powerful it was to unite these three army units together uh, instead of having them fight each other and compete with one another for resources and things, bring them in under one roof, you know, make them all brothers, get them fighting together against the enemy. Um, And you've already had for years... The Philippine SEALs and the Light Reaction Regiment, which is like their version of Delta Force, they work together a lot in combat, um, you know, in the Philippines. So they already had a very strong working relationship, and both sides, like, they're ready. They were like, let's come together, let's create a, a unified SOCOM. Um, and NAVSOC really, really wanted this because they felt like they were constantly short-sighted, short-changed, I should say. So it finally happened just recently. Um, it's going to be it's AFP SOCOM, Armed Forces of the Philippines Special Operations Command, has been created. Um, I I'm going I had a brief uh, email with General Pomodig. I'll be able to talk to him a little bit more later because nice. he, he's at a symposium right now. Um, so when he's back, we'll talk a little bit more. But I wrote a brief article about um, the this this new development that they're creating SOCOM. It's going to bring together all the Army units, the SEALs, uh, the new Air Force forward air controller unit. Uh, it, I'm not sure if the Marines, if their, their Marine Force recon is going to be brought in or not. I still have to figure that one out. Um, but this is a really good thing for the Philippines. That's great. Yeah, so people could look forward to seeing more of that on softrep.com, I guess, as you talk to General Pomonig and have more... Uh, to advance on that story. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. Cool. All right. Well, with that, let's get over to Army Ranger Curtis Albers. 
Um, last time we had you on was episode 311, which uh, was really one of our longest episodes. So if people want to go back to that and hear your full background, uh, I mean, I think the story is all there. But it sounded like you wanted to come back on and talk about uh, what happened to you post-service and, and from those experiences that you detailed with us on that episode. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I'd, I'd love to do that. Um, if, if that's okay, I, I hope it's not too boring for everybody. <laughs> okay, so after uh, after I got out of, out of out of Ranger Regiment, I ended up going back to Minnesota, which was a mistake. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. <clears throat> I started hanging out with, I guess, some of the guys that I I shouldn't have been hanging out with still. And essentially, for like the first three or four months after after I got back, uh, it was. Everything was pretty much slow. I wasn't really doing anything. I was I was looking for some sort of purpose, um, and I was trying to convince my sister to file a lawsuit. And um, when that la- that lawsuit started, that's when I realized, okay, you know, I, I've I have an opportunity here to start pushing um, for awareness in terms of foster children and what we actually go through in, in the system. And and, 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 and just to give background, I'm thinking for people who haven't listened to the previous episode with you. So this is a lawsuit against foster parents who you guys had some abuse at the hands of. Yeah. The, there was actually three, well, there's two different lawsuits. There was a lawsuit against the, the insurance company that was, um, that the foster parents were insured by. And there was a lawsuit, against the the foster parents and the social workers and and the agency that represented the foster parents and and, and all of this um, the lawsuit was actually because my sister had been unfortunately before I before I joined the military my sister had been sexually abused by a homeless guy that was living there <clears throat> yeah and when I even when I shipped off to basic training, this was happening, and I interacted with my sister a few times before that, but she never told me. I found out in airborne school uh, by a Red Cross message, <clears throat> and so when this stuff was going on, or yeah, I'm sorry, that's what the lawsuit was primarily about. Um, all of the other things, the the abuse that we were going through, that was sort of like like a, a tertiary thing. I mean, it, it was in the yeah. lawsuit. They recognized it, but it wasn't the main reason for the lawsuit. And so, um, and so as this lawsuit was going on, uh, I decided to reenlist in the military. Uh, I just joined the army reserves. I went on active duty after maybe a year of, of, of debating it back and forth. And I was stationed at Fort McCoy, Wisconsin, training, you know, regular army and, and air force people, uh, for deployment. Um, and that's what I did throughout. And so after that, um, I decided, okay, you know what? I need to actually start trying to do something with this. I need to, I need to tell people this story. I need to bring it out. And cause I know my sister wasn't going to, I, my sister was already talking about, um, about settling. This is four years of litigation that we were in. And then she was like, well, you know, wow. I'm thinking about, I'm just going to settle because I'm, I'm tired of having to relive this, you know, the sexual abuse yeah. stuff over and over again. And I, and I understood that I got it. But what made me a little bit irritated about that decision was that I really wanted her to make a better choice. Had she taken this to court, um, we could have exposed the entire foster care debacle and maybe laws could have been changed. People would have became more aware of it. 
Um, you know, and, and, and that's what I really want to do. But unfortunately I didn't get that far. And so the other alternative was, okay, well I can reach out to some people in foster care or some people that have experience in foster care and sort of, I guess, ask them what I could do. Um, so the first thing I did was I reached out to Antoine Fisher, right? So I, I exchanged a few emails with him. I got a lot of feedback from him, a lot of, a lot of inspiration to, you know, to write a book, to put together a book and to, to get it out there. Um, but the problem was I just didn't know how to do that. You know, I didn't know any, any writers or any professional writers at least. And I, and I was stuck. So, uh, I decided to, which was a mistake. I decided to hire a, a quote unquote manager guy, an entertainment manager. He owned his own entertainment company somewhere in, in New York. <clears throat> and he, and he was like, okay, Curtis, this is the deal. I will, I guess, manage your career. I guess you could, I guess you could say that. Um, I'm going to find you a ghostwriter and then I'm going to pay that ghostwriter to write your story. So your whole job is to work with that ghostwriter to put together three chapters of this book. And I said, you know, okay, that's, that's easy. That's fine. And I kind of trusted this guy because he worked with my aunt on a lot of, uh, nonprofit organization, uh, stuff that they did together. And so I kind of trusted him. And so we started working on this and, and maybe two months into it, we started to see, I started to see problems like the ghostwriter was fighting with him because he wasn't, he supposedly wasn't paying her on time. But Um, when I was working with the ghostwriter, I had a problem with how she wrote the first three chapters. She just, she didn't listen to any input from me. She just did what she felt like doing. So it's safe to say that that's not the route that you're going right now. You're going to be working on possibly doing a a film, right? Well, that's the plan. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's what I've been, I've put a lot of time and effort into, Um, but I'm, I'm stuck in a number of different places and what I'm getting from a lot of entertainment people, um, is the story is good. Everything is there, but we want you to add, you know, some people, for example, say we want you to add more, more, more ranger stuff. You know, we we want more Rambo, more explosions, more guns and, and, you know, all this other stuff, which really takes away from the story that I'm actually trying to tell. Then there are people who say, well, take out all of the military you t- take it all out. Just concentrate on the foster care thing. So I, I'm, I'm in that, that kind of, you know, uncertain position where I'm not sure exactly how to make the screenplay, um, what these people want. But Man, then write, the, write the book up, that you want to write. I mean, you can see like some wildly popular stuff like, uh, like that American Sniper movie was that an action film or was it a love story? Yeah, yeah see, I they, thought it was they more com- of an action film. They combined the two. Ah, uh, okay, yeah, yeah, but okay, that's true. But there's also, and I and I hate to say this, I really do because I don't think it's about the color of my skin. But sometimes, sometimes it feels like. Hollywood is more open to telling those types of stories because the portrayal of a special operations guy is not normally a black guy with a beard yeah. and sunglasses. It's, and, and well, it's and, funny because doing this show, um, I think you and I, Jack, like make an effort to reach out to the, obviously females are not in special operations, but we'll have female guests on when we can. Um, and if there are minorities who are in special operations, try to get those guys on. But 
I mean, you would you guys would know better than me. Is special operations like? Is it safe to say eighty plus percent white males? It's more than eighty yeah, percent. Yeah, it's way more than it's, 80, uh, I think. it's I, I've told this to Nick Irving before. Not exactly politically correct, but <laughs> the, you, you've probably heard it too, Curtis, in your travels that there ain't nothing stranger than a black ranger. Yeah, I've heard that a couple times. Actually. I thought that was a joke, but that's that's crazy. That's true. There's some I mean, truth to it. I mean, we had uh, there was one black guy in my in my platoon uh, who became a squad leader. Um, we had a black first sergeant, first sergeant Seely, yeah, in, Char- in Charlie Company, <laughs> uh, that, that, and that's about it, Curtis. That's about it, man. Yeah. <laughs> what do you guys think I, is the reason for this? Because I mean, you would think that there's all different types of guys who could excel in special operations, and especially you look at, I mean, just black uh, athletes. For I'll, example. I'll let, Cur- I'll let physical, Curtis answer that one. Yeah, you have wondering. much better insight than well, I. Well, uh, thank you, thank you, Jack. I appreciate that. <laughs> you you right, know so, more about so what it's like to be a black man than yeah. He knows a little bit more. American <laughs> in front of me. A little bit better insight on that one. Oh God. Okay, so here's the deal. Uh, you know what's funny? This reminds me of a story. I'll just tell quickly. I was in Scotland and uh, we were staying in and somewhere in Inverness. Or no, it was actually on the Isle of Skye. And a Scottish person, we were actually talking about this, uh, the special operations community in the United States. I don't know how it came up. But anyway, he's like, what is the reason? Why aren't there a whole lot of black guys in special operations, special forces? And I answered him exactly how I'm going to answer to you guys. The problem isn't that the special operations community is racist. The problem is, and and I know people are going to hate me for saying this, but it's the truth. It's just black guys don't want to do it. They, they don't – I've talked to quite a few black guys, uh, like friends of mine, who joined the military. But they wanted to do something that wasn't – I mean it's more about a paycheck than you know, serving the country sort of. Like I – I mean – Well, I, I yeah, think there have been some studies is. even that show that um, minorities uh, by and large – are joining the military for job training, skills exactly, training. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but it's a, you can get a bunch of like corn-fed white guys to join for like patriotism. Come die for your country. You know, we're like, <laughs> oh yeah, I'll charge that machine gun bunker. Let's do it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, but that's but that's that's true. You know, I mean, I I wasn't going to go into to the Ranger Regiment the, when I when I was in basic training. Whenever I heard Ranger, I thought, yeah, a white guy with a beard living in a cabin in the middle of the woods <laughs> carrying an axe. That's, you know, that's the first thing I thought. And I was like, yeah, you have to live and breathe army, you know. And, and that's why I was a little bit hesitant about, about going in. And then I started seeing, you know, a couple of black Rangers, a couple of Hispanic Rangers. And I was like, oh, man, it is it is pretty diverse, I guess. Well, in I mean, a sense. we we had tons of Hispanic guys, at least when, when I, I was in uh, in ACO. Uh, 375, this was like 2005, 2004, 2005, that time frame, like probably half of our platoon was, you know, Mexican-American. Yeah, wow. I mean, that's 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 awesome. I mean, when I was in, I think I was like the f- next to Sealy and a couple, maybe like one other guy. I think it was like the third the only there were like three black guys in the well. Well, Doc Nicholson. I don't know Doc Nicholson. Oh yeah, really I black. knew. I knew him. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> are you are you making fun of uh, of the skin tone of uh, Nicholson? Nick Nicholson. Yeah, I, I love Nicholson. Oh, I liked him. I liked him too. 
we um we used to joke about him every time he came into our our, our AO we'd be like ah Doctor Niggerson my favorite nigga doctor good evening nigga you know he would, he would just, oh my god he would just crack up it was so funny oh my so god so I'm assuming this is a darker white dude no no yeah. he's he's a white whiter skinned African American gentleman oh okay yeah, he, he was our medic he's he's awesome he's a great guy. yeah I, I, if I remember correctly I can't remember, I either went through Rip or I went through like Pre Ranger with him. I can't remember which, but yeah, really good guy. Yeah, he's freaking awesome. I hope he doesn't hate me for saying that. But but yeah, but I. <laughs> it's but a pretty un PC sh- show, so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's. I don't think there's a fear of of racism in the special operations community. If if, if someone says, if a minority says they have a like a legitimate fear of 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 being you know persecuted in the Ranger Regiment or or or. or or green or any of the other special operations unit. I think that's just like, I don't know. I wouldn't say that it's a lie, but I think it's a little, it might be a little bit fabricated. Nick Rubin wrote racism, an article about that on soft rep, like early on in soft long rep. time ago. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's, that's, that's crazy, but well, that, that would be my answer. I know that's probably not politically correct and I'll probably get, you know, I'll probably, someone will probably say something to me about that, but that's just my perspective. I, and, I I've, mean, and I've talked to a few people about that. So the only other thing I would ever have to say about this subject is, um, just my personal observation was there weren't that many, as you were saying, there weren't that many black guys who showed up at rip in the first place. Oh yeah. Oh, of so, course not. I oh, mean, yeah. it, and, and then rip, the attrition rate was probably like what? 70% or so. Oh yeah. 75%. Um, so of course, you know, it's not that from my opinion as a white guy, okay, I I don't have that much credibility (laughs) on it, but I I did not, I did not see any discrimination. It was just that there weren't that many black, uh, soldiers who showed up for selection in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Do you think the ones, I'm I'm sorry, sorry, do you guys think it could possibly be, uh, also a generational thing? Cause all right, for example, Frumentarius, who we've had on before. His dad was a SEAL, right? And I believe his grandfather was a SEAL. Am I correct on that? That's or his or his son, I think. I, I think his, it might be his, his, he comes from a SEAL family, yeah. Yeah, so okay. it's almost, I would think, you know, I, I've seen before that the New York City firefighters, for example, are mainly white, and they were actually talking about raising the age limit, and they're saying that, you know, like if your father was a firefighter, you're likely to go into it. If your dad was in special operations. That's a more um, recent trend, as I understand it, okay. Ian, uh-huh. with, um, with, with military service becoming generational. It used to kind of be like you were conscripted or not. But I think that they're finding nowadays it's more like if you join the military, um, and especially if you want to have a career in the military, more often than not, it, it becomes because your dad was in the your army or, or maybe your mother even. Yeah. Oh, wow. Hmm. But anyway, uh, please continue, Curtis. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely interested in your point of view on this. It's I, like I said, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> I, at first, I mean, I, I've heard people say that it's probably because of the swim test and okay. I'm not going to lie. I, I failed the swim test the first time I took it in rip. It was hard for me. But then I came back. Actually, all the black guys in my class, there were like four black guys. Uh, we all failed it. And then I'm going to get so much guys, hate mail for this show. Uh, I'm sorry. You're not I the one if, speaking. He's he's telling his story. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if you know. I don't know if you guys know Dark. Uh, not uh, I used to call him Dark Chocolate, but it was Doc Melvin. Um, no. Mike Melvin. No, I don't think I knew him. Guy. No. Okay. 
Well, it was me and him that that, that decided to try rip again, like you know, because after the, we failed the swim test, we had to be recycled and we had to wait for the next class to start. And we decided to do it again. All you know, the other two black guys decided to quit uh, it out. And I, I don't know. I mean, to be personally honest, I think just a lot of black guys don't want to go into the special operations because, yeah, like you said before, and it's more, you know, let's try to, you know, find a, a something that's going to give us, you know, opportunity right, after we right. leave the service. And that's why you see a lot of, you know, a lot of black guys in, in transportation. I mean, that's, that's like, I don't know. It's like 80% black over there from, from, from what I've seen. Yeah. I mean, and it really stands there. out. I mean, you were in, you were in three, seven, five Curtis. Yes. Yeah. You would have, yeah. Because of the names that were mentioned you would have had to have been, but, um, it, it's really stark at, uh, Fort Benning when you see a whole platoon of white dudes running around in their PTs, those are the Rangers <laughs> and then a whole platoon of black guys running. And that's the, um, you know, that's the transportation unit down the street. Did that actually happen? Yeah. Oh, I've seen oh, it. Oh, that's crazy. Many, many a time. Yeah. Oh man. And, and the, like, and do people say that it's, it's, it's a prime example of segregation? Yeah. That, yeah that, that's, that's, that's where the allegation, a lot of the allegations oh. come from. Um, because it just doesn't look good. Uh, I mean, I, honestly, it doesn't, uh, you know, it does. It's not a great yeah. look, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, that's, that's, but that's how it is. It has nothing to do with segregation. And the question becomes, do you try to like force it as some sort of like oh, affirmative no. action? Like, oh, we need more women in the ranks. So, you know, let's, oh. let, you know, and then you find a bunch of women who have no interest in special operations and, and throw them in there so that we can say we're more PC. Um, what is, what does that do? In the long run, I mean, is it, it destroys the, the unit, destroys the unit because you have people who don't want to be there and it's Ranger battalions and all volunteer unit. And that's why it didn't matter if the guy was black or white or Hispanic or whatever. They all went through the exact same selection process. Exactly. You so, you know, you know, they're good to go. Exactly. With the same standard. Yeah. I mean, I, that's uh, that that kind of makes me angry because it's it's. <laughs> But, bro, I, our, I just, our, our oh. unit was always under some kind of congressional investigation because of those racial allegations. They, they've always been there. Wow. Yeah, wow. All, all the time. And, I mean, you would think that these the people that make all of these rules and stuff would come down and observe, you know, and, and sort of and, and, and look to see what the actual core problem is. But I think people just want to, you know, like – make like develop some sort of instant solution that doesn't actually fix the problem just just so that the society can say oh look we're not the 75th ranger regiment's not racist we we have you know five or six black guys that don't want to be here and would rather be in transportation <laughs> that's 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 ridiculous i mean i i have to laugh at that oh man it's it's so oh i say if if the range regiment's just all white and maybe like there's a couple of black people that, you know, black guys that want to be there. I say, leave that shit alone. As long as the unit does its mission, I don't see what the problem is. So this is an interesting perspective coming from you because you spoke about in the last episode, you know, you were adopted by black foster parents at some points, and it sounds like you experienced more racism there than in special operations among just about all white guys. uh, Okay, that's... A great point. I really want to make this. It's really important that I make this point. Maybe people will get angry, but okay. Racism doesn't have a color, right? It, it, it doesn't. My, I've had, in my entire lifetime, I've had four white men 
walk up to me and call me a, a nigger to my face, right? But guess what? There was no oppressive factor. I wasn't being oppressed. I had the freedom to eat what I wanted. I had the freedom to walk away. I had I could make my own decisions at any point in time during that interaction, right? So I look at it when someone calls me a nigger. If they're not empower over me, then it's just name calling. Now, my black foster parents, they called me a nigger. They made me lick the toilet clean. You know, they made me, they, they locked the refrigerator so I couldn't get food. They made me sleep outside. They made me do all these, these bullshit tasks. So, so, so what am I going to consider more racism? Th- th- this, this name calling, this guy called me a nigger. Oh, okay. What's a nigger? No one actually even knows what the definition means. Apparently there isn't one. People expect me to emotionally get attached to that word and respond irrationally. Well, sorry, it's just name calling, right? But if black people call me a nigger and they're putting me down and making me feel like shit, that's that's that that's more racist than than the white person calling me nigger. It, that's my perspective. Well, your I your mean, skin must have been pretty thick too by the time you know somebody calls you a racial sore. It's <laughs> like you know I've been through some shit. You know this this isn't exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, a tragedy, I mean, from your perspective, I guess at that point, you'd been through a lot worse. Yeah. And, and the combination of logically thinking of it. I mean, yes, I have thick skin, but I also try to think about things in a logical way. You know, if, if, if someone comes up to me and, and yeah, exactly. Perfect example. Someone comes up to me and calls me a nigger. I have to decide whether or not that word that they say impacts or changes or alters my, how I feel about myself. If, I mean, it, it shouldn't impact how I feel about myself, myself. So the word shouldn't hurt. It shouldn't have any emotional impact. But, you know, like I, I understand why people get angry and upset. But when you start showing emotions to, to people who call you racist names, that means you just don't have any self-control. I, I'm sorry. I know that sounds – that maybe sounds crazy – you know, I mean, of course, I'm still going to be offended. But if I don't think that if someone calls me a nigger, if it doesn't if it doesn't change or alter the status quo, right, it doesn't affect my self-esteem, then then I'm good to go. OK. Well, I mean, not to make light of any sort of derogatory terms being used, but if we get to the point where there is no actual physical oppression or discri- like actual discrimination against people and it really does just become name calling that's probably i mean uh, that might be as good as we get as far as getting along with each other socially yeah, right i mean exactly, that that we're just yeah. going to call each other names but you know more or less society's equal well that's impossible. Well, no, okay. You're, it's close to impossible. <laughs> it's, it's close, close to, to impossible. impossible. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I don't want to say that, but you can't. Society will never be equal. It's impossible. Yeah. It is impossible yeah, because there are so many different. What are we talking about when we're talking about equality? Like when, and I and I, I hope you guys don't get so many angry emails. And I'm just sort of venting right now. Where are you? Where are you? Let it fly. Let it fly, Curtis. Let it fly. But but when women when women say we want to be treated as equals as men. Sometimes I don't completely understand what's being said. Oh, I, I know I there's, don't. <laughs> there's so many components of equality. What exactly are you talking about? I, I for example, okay, I want to be as equal to, I want to be equal to Bill Gates, right? Okay. Um, what are we talking about? Socioeconomic status. Okay. Bill Gates is a billionaire. Am I a billionaire? No, I recognize and understand, and I'm content with the fact 
that I'm not equal to Bill Gates socioeconomically. Attractiveness. Some women might say I'm more attractive than Bill Gates. Some women might say Bill Gates is attracted to me. Okay, I have to be content and accept the fact that I may or may not be as equal in terms of attractiveness to Bill Gates. That, that's that's rational thinking. I, if I make, I don't know, let's see, what did I make in the army? I don't know, as a, I don't know. Like, not if much. I make 12, <laughs> yeah, exactly, not much. If I make $12.30 an hour, right, I have to be content with the fact that that's how much I make. If a woman makes a little bit more than me and she's in the same job, but maybe she's been there longer or maybe she was there a day longer than me. I don't know. There's a number of different factors that play into that. I have to be sort of content and accept that equality. It's not a, it's not this, this, this constant thing, you know, you, you, I don't know. I don't understand when people say I want equality. Equality, by the way, is not, um, it's not, what is this, what is this term people use where they let certain minorities into like the Ivy League school? Oh, ah, like affirmative, affirmative action. action. Yeah. Yeah. Affirmative action is not equality. It is, it is, it, I don't know. It's, it's, it's digression is what it is. It is the, the perfect example of digression. Well, the next, um, the next episode, we actually have Amber Smith coming on, who is a fighter pilot. So it'll be interesting. Is I'd she like a to fighter hear, pilot or a helicopter pilot? Yeah. Helicopter. Pilot. Oh, okay. Cool. okay. So I'm, I believe she was a helicopter yeah, yeah, yeah. pilot. My fault. But so um, we have her coming on, but she is a mm-hmm. combat veteran. I'd like to hear her perspective on women in special operations because we could definitely be accused of mansplaining on here, women in special operations. I would like to hear a combat I'm, veteran. I'm, I'm actually not like totally opposed to uh, women in special operations if they go through the same selection process sure. oh, yeah. that I was talking about before. I don't care if the dude is black or white or if a woman's black or white. Which do you think is possible? I, you know, Brandon has talked about this earlier on in the show where he's like, there's probably an anomaly like a Ronda Rousey who could go through SEAL training. Yeah, there's like one in a million. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that there are women who. Wait, I'm gonna. I have to agree with Jack, and I want. I want to clearly say this to all the you know all the people that are probably going to be listening, um, is that yeah, I, I think that women and men, in terms of fairness, should be treated equally. I also think that if a woman can do the same, you know, she's held to the same standard uh, in the selection process as the men, and she makes it through, absolutely, I, I totally support her you know, fighting alongside me in the battalion or, 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 you know, whatever. I think she'll do probably a better job than some of the men can do, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've heard that perspective. Well, yeah. I mean, if a woman goes through the same damn process I went through, then she has the same right to wear the beret that anybody else does. I mean, yeah. Yeah. But no, it, I, I, it might be another question concur. of like, are there women who even want to do it that can do it? I, I think that is the question because, Damn, I haven't been keeping track, but I, I believe hasn't um, Bud's been open to women like the last couple of years, and none have attended. Ooh, I have no idea. I, I believe, I believe so. I, I'll have to double check on that. Yeah, yeah. I what mean, about? We'll hear Amber's perspective because I think it'd be a good one. What were you saying, Curtis? What about RASP? Have any women made it through RASP? I thought I, I thought I read somewhere that there was one one. Um, female that made it through RASP. Is that true? I heard there was a woman working in like battalion staff now, but, uh, okay. Um, I, I, again, I'd have to check up. I haven't been staying current 
And the army has been trying to keep a lot of this stuff under wraps too. I feel I like imagine so. Yeah. So wrapping stuff up, Curtis, what is uh, yeah, it that you, um, you know, plan on doing from here with your story and is there anywhere that people could contact you? Yeah. Okay. So, so really quickly, um, like right now I'm, I'm a little bit stuck in the film area. Like I said, be, because primarily I don't know what to do with the script. Um, you know, it's, it's, I think it's one of the top most frustrating things. And then, um, with the book, the book is progressing. I, you know, I'm working right now with the former creative executive at Lionsgate. She's nice. probably listening to this when it, when it airs, she'll probably Very listen cool. to it. Um, on the book, we're co-writing the book together. She, um, she's been very, very supportive. It's been exciting to work with her and, and we're going to, I think we're going to do really good things together. I also think that, um, after this book is finished, we'll probably, hopefully maybe start another one. Um, but yeah, I mean, people can just, I guess you can just reach out to me on Facebook. I, I do have an email. It's, it's just Curtis Albers at outlook.com. You can, you can just send me a message or, you know, a message of support or something like that. But but yeah, I mean, and also, can I just take one second, if there's anybody out there, like in the film industry, um, who who actually has knowledge in terms of how I could develop this script and make it more marketable, or Kurt, how me Curtis, and do you do want that? me to introduce you to my agent? Well, yeah, that would be great. Yeah. <laughs> that, would uh, be, that would be awesome. Yeah, I have a guy, and, and he, this dude actually represents a lot of other rangers, not just me. Wow. Well, I definitely need one. I need some serious advice right. because yeah. we'll, uh, we'll, we'll wrap later and I'll, I'll uh, intro you to that guy. Ah, oh, thank you. Thank you yeah, so absolutely. much. Man. I'd be happy to. You guys are awesome. And I just want to say thank you so much for allowing me to come back on soft rep and, and, and talk problem, to you man. guys for a little bit, man. It's, it's always badass to talk to Rangers and, 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 and people who know, you know, what the heck's going on in the world. Yeah. You're more than welcome on any time, Curtis. It was great to hear from you. Hey, you! thank you so much, man. Thank Absolutely. you for having me. No, for sure, man. And I should say, for people who want to hear the full story, I mean, we didn't get into all of it this episode, but go back to episode 311. Uh, it went over two hours. Like, we really went in-depth with your whole story. So people who might just be tuning in now that just heard the story of you, like you said, kind of the punishments that you had to do as a foster kid, it's there's a lot shit. more of that on episode Yeah, I, I, and I think, you know, continuing with your project, Curtis, I'd like to have a conversation sometime about what we can do to improve the foster care system and professionalize it. Um, as I've done some work on uh, counter-human trafficking stuff also, and that all it all plays into it. Like, all of these things are related because these kids who are at risk, they, they stay inside that cycle. They're not able to break out. Those become yeah. that abused child in the foster care system becomes the trafficked child, the trafficked teenager down the line. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, I yeah. Just, I, yeah. I'd definitely like to get into that with you. Absolutely, man. It's just one of the few things that I'm very passionate about, and I can't wait till you guys open that opportunity up for me, and I'll definitely be back. Awesome. Absolutely. Great. Great. Thanks, Curtis. Appreciate it, man. Hey, no problem, man. Thank you, guys. All right. We'll talk talk to you again soon. Great having Curtis Albers back on, and uh, that's cool that you kind of hook up for him, hopefully, with or at least could throw some ideas. I hope I have him. a hookup. Yeah. Hopefully it works out for At him. the very least, like, you know, he could ask him some questions that'll probably yeah, give him yeah. some guidance. Because um, it, is, it is a great story, for sure. A foster kid turned Army Ranger, now living in Germany. Um, pretty cool stuff. I think it's a good story, and I think... Uh, I, don't, I don't think you should be so hesitant to cross the stream, so to speak, right, about... 
being a foster kid and write about being an army ranger. Yeah, I agree. Um, all right, a ton of emails here. I'm going to get to these three. I'm going to start with the one that I like the most. Uh, Ian and Jack, I know this is a little lengthy, which is why I'm emailing you instead of just posting the review on iTunes. I just felt I needed to say some things about Soft Rep Radio that were of concern to me. I hope you take the time to read this. This podcast is the worst. I started listening to it, and now all I do is stare awkwardly at people as they try and regurgitate false or ill-informed news stories. People probably think I'm an idiot that can't comprehend what they're speaking about just because I'm better informed. So thanks for that, fellas. Jack talks about all the books he reads or has read, which makes me want to know how good they are, so I buy them. I'm up to three books a month. That's all the money that could be going towards unicorn frappuccinos. (laughs) (laughs) Somewhere there's a barista that can't go to college because I'm spending money on books. Not to mention the Crate Club book, which I think he means the Soprat Book Club. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I get every month that is handpicked by professionals because they think they know what I want to read, and they are never wrong. (laughs) I don't know how you government spies got in my head to know what I like, but get out. I'm reading three to four books a month now. Do you have any idea what that has done to my video game hobby? (laughs) Wrecked it. That's what it's done. I'm buying books on topics I never knew I wanted to know about from authors I didn't even know I liked. From Nick Irving to Hugh Slatter and Timothy Bax, Jason Delgado to Mike Ritland. I don't even have a dog to train, but I'm buying dog training books, all thanks to the boys at Soft Rep Radio. While I'm on the subject, thanks to Jack Murphy, I now read fiction books like, uh, like some nerd. I own every Deckard novel, and I've even <laughs> branched out to A.J. Tata. Ian, don't think you're innocent in all this either. Thanks to you, I've started reading Dan Gordon. What's next? Tom Clancy? Thanks, guys. Not to mention the extra gigabytes taken up on my iPhone, on my phone. Now from other podcasts that have steered me towards like the News Roundup with BK and the Mic Drop. I could use those gigabytes for numerous memes. Not now, though. If you guys keep this up, I may stop watching TV altogether. So if you want to hurt the local cable economy, keep up the great work. Uh, regards, James. Subscribe to the Spec Ops channel, and then you can unplug your cable also. Yes, sir. Yeah, and um, Drew Wallace is working on some great stuff there. But, yeah, no, thanks for writing that. And the reviews on Apple Podcasts, keep them coming, and they do not have to be lengthy at all, just like one sentence of what you think of what we're doing. Um, All right, here's another one from uh, Mark Beavers. Uh, I'm a civilian and avid soft rep listener. I've worked in jobs in the past that have put me in close relationship to people in the military, so I'm always interested in keeping up with what's going on with our armed forces and service members. Uh, I'm definitely thankful for all that they do. Jack mentioned the New York Times article about Rhodesian imagery being used by racists. That is probably the, some, there, there is probably some grains of truth there, but there's a lot of reaching and non-evidential conclusions drawn by the author. For example, Delta veteran Larry Vickers is a major military history buff and firearms collector. His images of the Rhodesian FAL were no more than his bragging about being able to acquire such a rare version of the weapon and the unique history it represents. While I can see some of the apparel dealers maybe having some racial motivations, I would say that is not true about all of them. There's definitely a military history and nostalgia to some of these items, but also I believe there's an interest among the firearms tactical, tactical community to have brushstroke camo hats, shirts, etc. For some reason, certain people want to have an operator cap in every shade of camo available. Cryptech, Tiger Stripe, he names them all, uh, Multicam, Tropic, you name it, there's a market for it. So I think there's a niche being filled there as well. 
Uh, thanks for the great episodes recently. You guys should definitely get Larry on sometime and also look into getting Ranger veteran John Lovell on for an episode. And then he writes a PS because he attached some uh, pictures when he was working in journalism uh, on the USS Rhode Island. Uh, and that's from Mark Beavers. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. And you seem to echo what he said about the Rhodesia. Story. Yeah. I mean, if you like collect, you know, weapons and you buy like a, a German Luger pistol, does that mean you're a Nazi? <laughs> yeah. Like, really? Yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement with you for sure. And, and that article did a lot of reaching from the New York Times. Um, this is from Chris. Ian and Jack, I wanted to start off by saying that I really enjoy the podcast. You guys do a phenomenal job, and I regret not finding it sooner than I did. I wanted to email the show and kind of highlight a moment from your most recent podcast with George Hand. He talked about deploying as a ranger in Somalia, specifically... He was a Delta operator in Somalia. Yeah, that's right, Delta operator. He wrote ranger, but yeah, uh, Delta operator. Specifically, when he selected the pavilion that his team worked out of, he mentioned that some Air Force Red Horse guys came in and helped them close up the uh, co- close up the compound and installed some air conditioning units for them. This was a really cool moment for me as I am a civil engineer in the United States Air Force. I recently deployed to the Middle East, filling a position that backfilled some shortfalls in a Red Horse unit. Doing some work outside of our op board was some of the best stuff we did, making life easier for people making the mission happen. I was honored to work beside those guys, and I made memories I will never forget. I guess I just wanted to say how cool it was to hear about a little-known elite uh, Air Force engineering force. Thanks for all you guys do. Chris. Cool. Yeah, so keep those coming. Softrep.radio at softrep.com. Uh, of course, there's only one club out there with gear handpicked by special operations veterans from several branches, and that, of course, is Crate Club. Past items we've had, uh, the EDC med kit that Chris Peranto did, the Cry Precision Ballistic Shield for your backpack, uh, the insert you could put in there, which was awesome. Great Club's stepping it up right now as 2018 progresses, as I've been talking to Scott Whitner, who's doing a lot there. Um, we're putting out custom products that you're not going to find anywhere else. Uh, we have different tiers of membership, depending on how prepared you want to be. Gift options are available as well, and you can check that out all at CrateClub.us. Once again, that's CrateClub.us. For you dog owners, check this out. You're going to love this. We've just launched Kuna. We have a team of trained canine handlers picking out a box for your dog every month of healthy treats and training aids. It's custom built for your dog's size and age as well. The products are U.S. sourced, all natural, and not only promote a healthy diet, but also promote being active with your dog. So whether you're talking a pit bull, a chihuahua, this is what you're looking for. You can see all of that at kuna.dog. That's kuna.dog. It's efficient. And uh, it's also great for your dog. He's going to appreciate it, he or she. Uh, and that's spelled C-U-N-A dot D-O-G. Once again, C-U-N-A dot D-O-G. And as a reminder, as Jack kind of mentioned earlier, for all of you listening, for a limited time, you could receive a 50% membership to the Spec Ops channel, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops Channel premiere show Training Cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops Channel, and that's at Spec Ops Channel. 
Dot.com. Take advantage right now of a limited time offer of 50% off your membership. Only $4.99 a month. SpecOpsChannel.com. Or, as we've mentioned in the past few episodes, if you're a SoftRep Team Room member, you'll get that included as well. Um, wrapping things up here, I felt we have to mention, rest in peace, Arlie Ermey. Yeah, he's a legend. Yeah, never got to have him on the show, but Andrew Welkow did. I posted that picture. And he was him. a real legit Marine, too. Yep, legit Marine. Yeah. Very big NRA guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was a, uh, a drill instructor. He wasn't a gunny. That's interesting. Yeah. He, was, he was a staff sergeant. Uh, but he was a drill instructor, and uh, then later he, gave, he was like, uh, as an honorarium, he was promoted by the Marine Corps to Gunny. Um, but, no, oh, great character actor, too. Yeah, so it was, it was a shame to hear that, and I saw all the pictures going around. Dakota Meyer posted a picture with, uh, with uh, Arlie Ermey. So the people who have met him seem to speak very highly of him. Uh, He'll be missed. I mean, he made such an impression in the uh, Stanley Kubrick film. And probably, metal jacket. even though it's, you know, certainly a pretty graphic film, it probably led some people to join the military. Bro, that movie puts so many dudes in the Marine Corps, yeah. you can't even begin to imagine. And it's kind of like an anti-war film, That's too. what I'm saying. You know, yeah, Stanley not... Kubrick was kind of pointing to the, the absurdities of, of uh, the military and of war, right? Yeah, that's because it's not like a... Um, a yeah, yeah, like, woo America, you know, type of recruiting yeah. tool. Yeah, no, not at all. It's about the, uh, to me anyway, it's about the absurdity of war. Um, and uh, But, I mean, so many young people saw that movie, including myself. I'm like, yeah, that looks really cool. Let's go do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, well, great show. I'm looking forward to having an Amber Smith on next show. And you know what I forgot to ask Curtis Albers? I, I, I didn't ask if he's ever seen The Big Bang in Pyongyang. <laughs> <laughs> you had to fit that in somewhere. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a Team Room member today at softrep.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio. And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb.